This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 18, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In 1949, four young black men were wrongfully accused of rape in Florida. The case of the Groveland Four remains a powerful object lesson in systemic racism and white supremacy. And even though all four of those men are now dead, the state of Florida last week finally pardoned them. It's a bittersweet ending to a story chronicled in Gilbert King's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America. I spoke with Gilbert King this week. I think for people who are uh, 40 and under, maybe 50 and under, they're aware of the career of Thurgood Marshall on the U.S. Supreme Court and really not much else. Right. So... Part of the events that sort of led up to him becoming such a notable figure uh, within the law, what was his project uh, aimed at generally uh, in the decades in which he was doing all these civil rights cases? Yeah, and I think that that was one of the things that was most interesting to me because I wasn't really fully aware. I knew he was a, I knew Thurgood Marshall was the first African American Supreme Court justice, and I knew he was involved in these landmark civil rights um, cases along the lines of, you know, Brown versus Board, the school cases, the housing cases, the voting rights cases. But I guess I really wasn't fully aware that he was getting involved in these death penalty cases, these small cases that started in these very small southern cities and towns where, you know, it was just really him or maybe him and a, and a partner showing up and being just the last line of defense in, in some of these important death penalty cases. And so that was, that was quite a surprise to me. And, you know, he was known as Mr. Civil Rights, but, you know, he was really a, a hero to a lot of these communities that just, you know, they would usually get court appointed attorneys who were basically, you know, white businessmen or white lawyers in town who had business interests. They weren't so necessarily skilled at 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment law, whereas Thurgood Marshall and his lawyers, that's all they did. And so it, it was really, I think, uh, quite a surprise to see how involved he was in the criminal justice system back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And I, I can imagine after a certain point, the the prospect of having someone like a Thurgood Marshall and his team that are practicing these kinds of cases all the time come into your area might have well affected how uh, trials proceeded that he never touched. Right. And, and I think that's a, that's a really good way to look at it. And for Marshall himself, you know, he knew he was going to lose a lot of these cases because, you know, the odds were just so stacked against him in these local trials that, you know, it was really just came down to 12 white jurors doing what the prosecution asked of them, of him. And, and so Marshall knew he was going to lose, but his his way of thinking in these type of cases, if they were important enough to get involved in, if he could somehow appeal these and possibly get them before the U.S. Supreme Court, that was a more level playing field for him. Who was Sheriff Willis McCall? Well, Sheriff Willis McCall was, um, you know, he, he had a long reign, 28-year reign in central Florida in a county called Lake County. Um, he was really basically put into office by some wealthy citrus barons who really just wanted a law and order sheriff to sort of, you know, crack down on union activity and, and, and just sort of keep blacks in line in the citrus groves. And that's how he really came into office. He had, he had a lot of experience in agriculture at the time. Um, but basically he became a man who just really, uh, I don't have to describe it, but he, he, he went far beyond the citrus interests. He, he was basically 
at the head of the Ku Klux Klan in this area. And so his main his main job just became about racial suppression and white supremacy. And that's what he really enforced for you know 28 years. Uh, he was a very violent um, sheriff who got away with things time and time again. He was basically a Teflon sheriff. Um, and and it mostly it was because uh, the, the government, from the state attorney to the judge to the U.S. attorneys to the governors themselves, always had Willis McCall's back. And so he really had a, a powerful reign in Lake County. Uh, so Willis McCall arrests four young men uh, after an accusation, I, I suppose not even really an accusation, but a claim of rape by a, a 17-year-old girl. And so he arrests these four young men. How did that trial proceed? And at what point did uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, get involved? Well, what happened was as soon as the arrests were made, you had you know the Ku Klux Klan was just storming into this area, and they were um, burning down black homes. And it got it became so bad that the National Guard had to be called out. Um, and so what happened was they they moved very quickly in the Jim Crow South from arrest to trial. They gave uh, these men about a month to prepare for trial, and that was the start of the trial. And um, Marshall had sent down some, you know, associates from the National Association for the Advancement of White uh, for, of Black People, sorry, NAACP. I'm, I'm I'm getting confused because there's there was a, an organization that formed in Lake County called the NAAWP, National Association for the Advancement of White People, and it was a white supremacy group. And so those are the groups that Marshall was dealing with at the time. But he sent it, let down lawyers from the NAACP to defend these uh, African Americans in Groveland. And uh, it was a travesty of justice. The trial was so bad, uh, witnesses were perjuring themselves left and right. Uh, you had uh, fabrication of evidence. You had witnesses being hid from the defense. And whenever Marshall and his lawyers tried to subpoena certain documents that might, you know, be exculpatory evidence, uh, the judge would just quash it. Blacks excluded from the jury, right? And so the, the doctor had a, a medical report that he he filed. He found no evidence of sexual assault, and so the prosecution just hid that doctor from the defense, and and the judge refused to allow that report to come into evidence. I mean, so that was what Marshall and his lawyers were were up against at the time, and it. it Later on, it was reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court, and Justice Robert Jackson wrote the opinion. He said, this case presents one of the best examples of one of the worst menaces to American justice. So here we are decades later. This alleged incident occurred in 1949, and here we are many decades later, and these four young men have been pardoned. But of course, a lot has happened between then and now. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I think that's remarkable is that 70 years ago, uh, this young woman, Norma Paget, showed up in courtroom and she identified the Groveland boys as her attackers. And Marshall and his, his lawyers uh, basically just said, that's the trial. It's over now. That was all you really needed. The evidence wasn't even important. Just those accusations of a, of a white woman in court making those claims and identifying her attackers was enough. And um, I think 70 years later, remarkably, Norma Paget showed up. She hadn't spoken in seven decades. And she showed up to that um, hearing room in Tallahassee and basically stuck to her story and said that uh, she was against the pardons. Um, but a lot had changed. Her words didn't carry the kind of weight that they did 70 years ago in Lake County, Florida. Now there was a lot more evidence, evidence that I was able to turn up 
um, by filing Freedom of Information Act requests. And that evidence is pretty powerful and, and showed all the perjury and, and all the uh, evidence that was missing during the trial. And so that was really enough, I think, for the clemency board to, to say that the, these men should be pardoned. How does it feel to, to know that this has occurred? I mean, if you, if you go through your, your book, uh, Devil in the Grove, it's you know, a horrific story. And it seems sort of, I don't know, ineffectual that this pardon is occurring. It's, a, I suppose, at least a recognition. How does it feel? Yeah, I think that's the thing. You know, is a pardon enough? You know, these guys are all dead. What, is, what does a pardon mean? And, and I, I thought about that a lot. And I, I definitely understand that argument. I can only tell you that, you know, having spent so much time with the Groveland families over the years, um, to them, it's just sort of a recognition that the state was wrong. And that, you know, they were getting gaslighted in the official version. The official version has always lingered that these men were rapists and that one one evening they tried to attack the sheriff and he was forced to defend himself and kill them. Um, when in truth, the reality of it is these men were totally innocent and the sheriff committed cold-blooded murder. It wasn't an escape attempt. Uh, he tried to kill them because he didn't like the fact that they had got uh, retrial. And so to me, if the families are satisfied and they, they feel like this, this brings them some relief and just recognition that, you know, their official story, uh, was, was wrong the whole time, then, then to me that I'm just very satisfied by that. What changes in having this story out there and appreciated uh, by the public. Obviously, uh, the the book won a Pulitzer Prize, but what does it mean to have this kind of story told? I, I think what's really important, and this is one of the things that I tried to, you know, really be aware of while I was working on it, because honestly, I didn't know all of this, and a lot of this was new to me. Um, I really could not believe the level of participation and enabling that the government was doing in order to secure and and maintain this hold of white supremacy. Uh, in this particular part of Florida, um, I, I have uh, originally originally started out thinking, all right, this is a, t a story of a really bad sheriff. Um, but the further and further I got into it, when I saw that you know the, the governor was complicit, the U.S. attorney was a white supremacist him himself, and he was making rulings involved involving this case, uh, sort of ordering the FBI not to do further investigations. Uh, I couldn't believe some of the things I was seeing. It went right up to the governor. Um, just sort of having Willis McCall's back, that to me was the most disturbing part of the entire uh, uh, of the entire investigation that I did. That there was that there was, uh, I think you wouldn't call it a conspiracy necessarily, but it was a conspiracy to maintain uh, a violations of rights on a systemic basis for particular groups of people. It really was a conspiracy, and that that that's the thing that's hard to imagine. Like just the the, the level of duplicity. I, I had gotten a, a letter fairly recently from the grandson of the prosecutor, and uh, he basically told me. He said we all knew in the family that, that that these claims of rape were were not accurate, but this was the mask that had to be worn in order to be a state attorney uh, in this part of Florida. And so, and he even said that the judge was aware too that these claims were false, and yet they went through with the entire thing. Now, fortunately, that state attorney, towards the end of his life, when Walter Irvin, one of the defendants, was about to go to the electric chair, he wrote a letter to the governor sort of recommending that, um, that, that Walter Irvin be spared from the electric chair because he, didn't, he had doubts about his guilt. That's as far as he was going. But he did write that letter, which is an unusual thing for a state attorney uh, to just come out and basically say, I got the facts wrong of the case. 
So what changed to make this exoneration occur? Uh, well, it's probably a series of steps. I think one of the most important things was just awareness. The book got a lot of attention and people started to look at it. One of the things that I think was really important was that there was a student at the University of Florida named Josh Venkataraman, and he was reading this, this, the book in uh, his history class. And he decided he was going to start a petition. And he did. He got thousands of signatures. And then he went to his local representatives down in Broward County and basically convinced them that they should do something about this. And so uh, Representative Bobby DeVos and Senator Gary Farmer got together and co-sponsored a bill. This is about two years ago and brought it to the floor of the Florida State Legislature and, and, and apologized to the Groveland families and recommended that they be put forth towards exoneration by the clemency board. So it was really, I think, a grassroots um, sort of activism that really inspired this. It was just a, a young 21-year-old kid who's reading this in, in his history class, and he was really the one that started it all. We glossed over, really, the fact that uh, Sheriff McCall killed uh, some of these young men. He was cleared of any wrongdoing. Right. What did what did his career look like after 1951? Well, you know what's interesting is that that was a that was a major happening. Like on, on the evening of the retrial, the sheriff shoots two of the defendants in a car, claiming that they tried to escape. One of them died instantly. The other one survived uh, by playing dead because he was handcuffed to his best friend. Um, if he had died that night, I don't think this case, I definitely couldn't have written this book. I mean, th th that would have been the end of this case. The fact that he lived and there was a forensic investigation into that shooting that sort of proved uh, to the FBI that Willis McCall had, had committed this in cold-blooded murder. Um, that was really the, 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 the thing that got this case off the ground and made it a national story at the time, even though it was, it was forgotten quickly. Um, so that that was that that catalyst in the whole thing, just surviving that execution. It was sort of almost like having cell phone footage of a, of a murder. That was it was proof that people now were able to say that perhaps the sheriff is a cold blooded murderer. Gilbert King is author of Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America. We spoke this week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.